Welcome to Count Four and You're In, a father and son podcast, where Harley Rodica chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer Marcel Rodica, delving deep into his history and journey into the heart of the Australasian music industry, taking on the world with New Zealand band Mother Goose and his survival as a working drummer today. All right, so we're back for another episode, Dad. Good to see you again. Thank you, Harley. Good to see you. Last time we spoke, Steve dropped a bombshell and announced that he was going to be leaving the band. He said that at a, at a restaurant. We all went out for dinner and made that announcement. And I don't think any of us were expecting that. It was really quite a bit of a shock. And the timing was kind of strange in a way. We were set to record our third album in Perth. Steps were in place. The Planet Studios was booked. We had been rehearsing and writing and rehearsing and prepping the recording of the album. Yeah. So then all of a sudden Steve was leaving and it was like, well, what does that mean for the record? Yeah. And if we're going to carry on, then we have to find another keyboard player. And is that keyboard player going to be on the record? And there was all these questions. Did you start talking about that straight away? Well, yeah, we did because yeah. our whole purpose for being was being in the band. Apart from it being our life, it was also a business decision. What do we do next? So we needed a few days to digest that and Steve had made it clear why he wanted to go and, and we had to kind of come to terms with that and then plan our next move. In between that and recording, we'd gone over to Sydney and Melbourne to do some gigs. We have to start advertising for a keyboard player because we decided we were going to carry on. So what, what happens? Does Steve hand in his resignation letter for, I'll be gone in two weeks? Or That's a good question. I think he said that he would leave after the album. Because most of the songs right. were Steve's songs that we were going to record on the album anyway. Yeah. So Steve was going to get to record the album and then leave after the recording of the album. That was the plan. So we put an ad in Duke magazine, which was the country's biggest music newspaper. We didn't say who we were. We just said Australian touring band looking for a keyboard player must have a sense of humour, must yeah. uh, be able to play can't yeah. the, the exact wording of the ad. We got quite a few replies and there was one who we really liked the sound of, and his name was Noah Shilkin. How did you do the auditions? Was it like you had a keyboarder well, in a room and you all sat and just... Well, no, we didn't. In New York, when Pete left, that's what we did. I don't recall doing that at all. What we did was we got some letters from people who had applied, and one of them was Noah, and he was playing in Perth in a piano bar. And so because we were heading back to Perth, Dwarf and I jumped on a plane ahead of the other boys and we went and watched him play in a piano bar in Perth. Did he know you were going? Yes. Oh, yeah, he did. Yes, he did. Yeah. Dwarf and I went and we thought he was really good. He was, he was a kid. That's why we nicknamed him the kid. Right. Because I think he was only 21 or something and the rest of us were in our late 20s. Yeah. You know? He was just a youngster. But he was playing all these um, Billy Joel, Elton John piano bar covers and singing, and he was really good. So we told the other lads, yeah, when you come over in a day or two, he's, you know, still playing. Yeah. Residency in a piano bar. So the rest of us all piled in again. and went and watched him play. The decision was made. Yeah. And then we had a jam with Neil, obviously. We got him into the rehearsal room and jammed with him, and he came up with some ideas. And oh, there's absolutely no doubt that he could play. He was a really good player. But, you know, the thing about Steve Young is that Steve... When Steve plays piano, both his hands are going all the time. He is just a busy keyboard player. Both yeah. hands are going all the time. And some of those traditional Mother Goose keyboard parts, they are orchestral bits and big yeah. piano bits and 
And so Noah, he needed to be able to replicate that. Yeah. And so to our um, surprise, he had no problem playing those sweeping melody lines, that those chunky piano parts that yeah. Steve would chunk at. So we decided that Neil was it. Even though he was a youngster, he was happy to wear an outfit on stage and he was happy to run around. He knew all about Mother Goose. Yeah. What was his outfit that he wore? Well, that's a good question too. Because to create a new Well, a you new see, one. you see, the thing is, we'd gone past the tutor, you see, we were beginning to unpack our pixie and sailor and um, oh, and that desire right. to let the hair out, you know, become a bit more normal looking was beginning to unveil. So the Pixie outfits and the sailor's outfit became sort of jumpsuits and they were multicolored and striped. So there was still lots of color on stage, but the hats were beginning to go. Yeah. And the long hair was beginning to show and the slightly. So by the time Noah got to his outfit, he was in a striped jumpsuit like the rest of us. Yeah. So it wasn't so radical. So once Noah joined the band, did he work on any of the songs for the new album? He did. Steve had written a lot of those songs, like I mentioned. The bulk of the album was Steve and Craig's. No, well, Steve played them on the recording. Yeah. But there was one song that we wrote, which was Craig, Pete and Noah wrote, was Margarita and Me. Yeah. Which actually was the strongest song off the album. Yeah. And it's one that got the most airplay. And that's the first song, as I understand it, that Noah became part of the songwriting team. It's a catchy wee pop tune, and it's actually uh, his influences on that, but it still sounds like Mother Goose. He brought a nice poppy modern sort of touch to it. Keep listening to Count Four and you're in. So you were recording your third album. Who was your producer on this album? And that's always a hard thing because you're trying to find a producer who will empathise with your music, someone who likes your band and was happy to work with you. So we found Richard Batchins. Yeah. And Richard produced Richard Clapton's album, Girls on the Avenue, that had the song Girls on the Avenue on it, which is a, was a big Australian hit. And Richard produced that album. I think he produced one of the early Cold Chisel albums. And so Richard, we thought, was the main man. So he came over to Perth for the next four, five, six weeks, whatever long it took to record that album. And uh, he did a good job. He was he came, again, as producers do, they bring their own thoughts and ideas and yeah. knowledge and skills to try and make the most out of a Mother Goose record, which is not really the easiest thing to do, is find a, something commercial for a Mother Goose record. Yeah, yeah. And you would have been a bit more experienced in the recording studio this time yep, around. Yeah. However, I'm actually not that proud of my drumming on a lot of that album. Not all the tracks. Mother Goose was such a strong live band. Put us on a stage and we'll blow the place to smithereens. Yeah. Get us into this recording studio to record this third album. Well, Steve had already notified that he's off. We were trying to bring in a new keyboard player. We didn't know where our career was heading next with these things in the background. And consequently, I think I didn't drum with a lot of my normal confidence. Mm. Some songs sound really good. The first song on the album tonight is yeah. a good indication of a good Mother Goose, catchy, poppy, pumping rock tune. Yeah. And I felt really good about that. And it's a really, really neat song. We did a video for it. Yeah. That was really good.
down the track, Margarita and Me. Margarita and Me, I've already mentioned, is a really good pop tune. Yeah, that's that a, a good li- song. Yeah, and it livens up the album. I feel quite good about that. I got time on my hands. I just slide in the sand. But I'm always on the rails. If my doorie with me, I don't work, only play. I could quite easily fade away. My whole life's a holiday. Margarita, she loves me. And she'll laugh the day she tells me. Okay, you're a celebrity. Let's say. song on the album's Lonely Girls. Yeah, Lonely Girls, that Steve wrote that about girls hanging around King's Cross in Sydney. There was a big thing about young girls playing their trade in the middle of King's Cross, which is a notorious part of Sydney. And Steve seemed to find that as a trigger to write that song. I really like the song, a very different song from Mother Goose. It's got lovely piano work. She knows the guy who take good care of her Girl Across the Street. Girl Across the Street is a song, when I say I'm not playing it with a lot of power, that's probably one of them. It's a slow song. Drums sound a wee bit plotty in it to me. It's not meant to be big because it's quite a mellow ballad. Yeah. It's a really sweet song, but it's not one of my favourite drumming tracks. She was staring out the window I Believed in God. With a title like that, that can only be a Steve Young song, (laughs) because that's the sort of angle that Steve would take for his writing. Um, Second time he used Double Kick on a record. Fun song to play. Enjoyed it a lot. I wish I believed in God. I wish I believed in God. I wish I believed in God. I wish I This is the life. This is the life was the title of the album. We played This is the Life all the time in the show. Like I think of This is the Life, I think of touring. I think of that song. It's a power pack tune. 
I Love You So. Yeah, that's another good Steve Young ballad. Punters loved the song live. Mother Goose, delicate moment one minute and a huge moment the next. Yeah. Then another delicate moment, then a power-packed song. Probably one of the strongest songs on the album. small town now living in a small town is where we kind of go country <laughs> it's gentle it's mellow and Richard decided that it needed a bit of a country touch and so one of the best guitarists in the business Tommy Emmanuel was in Perth at the time if any guitar playing fans out there they'll know Tommy Emmanuel now 2022 one of the world's leading guitar players he's amazing and he was amazing then and I'm talking about 1982 it needed a special touch. So he got Tommy in, and I'll never forget it. He came in, and Richard said, come in. I was there. Yeah. Um, Tommy just sat in the control room with a, a little amp. And he said, okay, so I need a couple of licks in between these lines, you know. And Tommy's just like. Straight in He's there. just in it. It was just like, oh, my God, that's just perfect. You can hear his influence. He's got the country-picking skills, you know. And it was so different for us. I'm kind of um, really encouraged by what I was hearing because yeah. I thought, man, our sound's changing yeah. and I'm liking it and it's cruisy and it's kind of stylish and, and we've given up a lot of the power pack rock or some classy kind of mellow yeah. music. Yeah. Where that was going is anyone's guess. I don't know where it was going, Yeah. but it felt really neat. In and gone within 30 minutes. He just came in, did what Richard asked, sounded yeah, fantastic and gone. That's wow. the markings of a professional. Yeah, yeah. just wonderful players. So the last song is Welcome to Radio. Yeah, one of my least favourite songs. Played it all the time. If I play that one more time, I'll probably go mad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't one of my favourites, but yeah, it pumped along and rocked along. Listening to the radio 
did mention before a little bit, um, Fly By Night was closing out the, the album. Yeah, with, with Tommy playing. Sounds really lovely. Fly by night, fly by You're listening to Count Four and you're in. So your This Is The Life album was out, released, and I'm guessing you probably went on another tour. Yep, we did, as you do. We left Perth and uh, went over to Sydney, Melbourne, Queensland, and toured the This Is The Life tour. Still pretty much packing places, which was really great. But it was just another Aussie tour, like yeah. all the previous tours beforehand. Towards the end of that tour, changes were afoot. Things happened. Dynamics changed. Got to the end of the tour and somehow word was out that Pete was quite keen to rejoin the band, Peter Dixon. And as I understand, I think Justin, when he heard that, I think he pretty much decided, well, in that case, that's my cue out of yeah. here. Yeah, he just got up and left pretty yeah. much within a few days. I don't recall a lot of fuss. I don't recall a lot of animosity. I think he just felt it was time. And of course, with Pete coming back into the fold, it was an easy transition for us. Let's face it, Pete started with us. So it was an easy thing to do. And the other thing that was going on at that time was management. We weren't really being managed. Our booking agent, John Sinclair, was doing a lot of work with us and he was done an amazing job, but he wasn't really our manager. So we did have uh, a manager two guys actually come in looking to manage us. Mm. And after many discussions with them, we decided that, yeah, we did need some help. We were neither going up, neither going down career-wise. Yeah. We were holding our own and running on the spot to a degree. So we thought, well, we've got two guys who are keen to see us go forward. Let's work with them. So we got them on board, and after a little while working together, they did a pretty good job at the beginning and got us our usual gigs and got us good money and all those things that you need. And then they had connections in Canada with the records that we had out and um, their connections in Canada. They thought they may be able to get us some gigs in Canada. From our point of view, we thought that could be a great springboard to the States. Yeah. All we're going to do is go to Canada and we'll soon make connections and get back into America. Because yeah, yeah. we hadn't been there since 1978, since the Hollywood Hills in New York, and now it's 1982 into 83, and I think we saw this perhaps as our last ditch to see where it goes. So at the end of that tour, and with Pete back in and Justin gone, with new management in place, we were off to Canada. Keep listening to Count Four and you're in. So you then moved to Canada. How was that? What was that like? <laughs> I know. Oh, dear. One last chance. Off to Canada we go. You're like, here we go again. I know, I know. It's like the never-ending search for success. Yeah. But anyway, we get on this plane and we head off to Canada. We arrive at Vancouver Airport and we're met at the airport by this big lumberjack-looking bloke called Bruce, really nice guy. He took us to our accommodation, which was the Caribou Hotel, or the Boo Pub, as it's known, in the middle of Vancouver. Funny, on the plane over, I was speaking to one of our managers and he shows me a list of dates that we're supposedly playing, but not all the dates were full. They were just dates on paper to satisfy immigration oh. that we could get in and work. I thought that was a wee bit weird, but didn't really take too much notice of that at the time. So anyway, we get to Vancouver 
and we go to the pub the very first night at the Boo pub where we're staying. There's a rock venue at the back of the pub. So we go and see the band playing, and they're a cover band. We thought, oh, that's good. And I think I got up and had a jam. I think right. I played Jump or something from Van Halen or yeah. maybe something like that. But anyway, so we got a feel for Vancouver, and we drove around for the next few days. So we got a gig there, and we played there for three nights. And at the end of the three nights... The audiences that came to see us had no idea what we were about. It was the weirdest thing. And this was a cover band bar, not so much an original band oh, venue. Right. And all the bands that played there are cover bands, but of course we aren't. So we were a fish out of water. Yeah, let's say. yeah. But anyway, we started doing gigs. We worked with an agency in Vancouver, the Feldman Agency, they were called. They were looking after Brian Adams and Loverboy, you know, two huge Canadian artists. Um, so we started playing some gigs around Vancouver. The reaction was pretty much the same. People didn't really know what to make of us. Yeah. And that was kind of weird for us because we were so confident. This side of the world, yes, everywhere we went was fine. But over there, that just seemed harder. Anyway, we started playing around these places. And, and then we got sent to this town called Kamloops, which is four hours drive into the middle of British Columbia. A little run of country towns. And we thought, oh, well. You've got to get out there and work hard and meet new audiences. We get to the gig at Kamloops and we're setting up in the afternoon sound checking and in walks these two uniformed guys to the sound check yeah. in the afternoon. And they're immigration officials. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> they're immigration officials. Oh, yeah. And they saw an ad in the paper that this Australian band was over playing at a bar in town and they wanted to come and check out Immigration status, didn't they? Of course they wanted to check our immigration status. And what was our immigration status? Well, not good. <laughs> it wasn't great. So apparently the stamp in our passports meant that we weren't actually legally allowed to be working there. Well, I don't know what we got, but obviously someone stuffed up. So anyway, they come in and they're really nice to us. They let us play the gig that night. Yeah, they let us play because it was so, so late and the gig was on. And, but at midday the next day, we had to be in their office, right. all nine of us. All had to traipse into the immigration office in Kamloops to be told, you guys are out of here. Can't be working any longer in this country. You better get back to Vancouver, get back to where you came from. And get and out basically of got kicked out of town. So we, we ended up going back to Vancouver and sort that out. So that took... Craig ringing up the New Zealand consulate, the Australian consulate. Management was working hard on the case to try and reinstate us to be oh, able to yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. It was a moment for, So we went back to the hotel and went back and sat in our rooms waiting for some good news. That took days. Finally, we got some luck where we did get some good news, which was meant that we had to drive from Vancouver to Seattle, which is south of Vancouver, yeah. in America. So we had to go out of Canada into Seattle to the immigration department to reapply for a visa to get back into Canada. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had to do that. I think we probably did that about half a dozen times. Ridiculous. We'd leave at like 7 in the morning, drive to Seattle to be there at opening time so we could be the first in the queue. And then we have to join the queue and then we have to apply to get a temporary working permit to go back into Canada. So we were able to work when we went back, yeah. but only to a designated time set by the immigration department. Right. So that, that might have been two weeks or three weeks, or they might have approved six gigs. Yep, you can work these six gigs, but after that you have to come back and reapply. Yeah. We did that about half a dozen times. Far out. It was frustrating. 
some ways we got to see a bit of Seattle, you know, while we're waiting. Like we'd apply in the morning yeah. at the immigration department. They'd say, well, give us a few hours. We'll process this. Come back at three o'clock in the afternoon and we should have it ready for you. So we'd spend the day looking around Seattle. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't all bad. No. But at the same time, everything was a complete hold up. So we spent a lot of time in our rooms at the Caribou Hotel. Mm. We're not making money. We're racking up accommodation bills. Mm. But when we were allowed to work... We ended up going to Edmonton, to Calgary, a small, tiny place called Prince George. We travelled round. We were going long miles. For example, we'd drive to Calgary and play to 30 people. Who's heard of Mother Goose in Calgary? Yeah. It's all very well saying Australian band playing tonight. But this place, Prince George, which I was talking about, the people loved it. I thought it was a real redneck town yeah. and it was full of redneck people, cowboys yeah. and stuff. But they really loved the band. Yeah. And we had a big party afterwards and dinner afterwards. And so there were some good memories going on. Yeah. But largely it was all about long distances, traveling to no people, making not a lot of money. And our careers all of a sudden not moving as forward as quickly as we'd like. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you, that whole Canadian trip, which was meant to last five weeks, lasted five months because of that whole immigration thing. Yeah. And us working to pay our bills back, the hire of the truck for our gear, you know, the accommodation. The manager at the at the Boo Pub, he kindly let us rack up, uh, rack up the bills, you yeah. know, uh, add the bills up, and then we were able to uh, pay them back from our playing. So he was really kind. So at the end, we finally got a return date yeah. five months later that we were finally going home, and I was just so excited. <laughs> I couldn't wait to get out of there. The band was playing brilliantly, but we were getting nowhere. So I was happy to go home. I, you know, make it sound like it's all bad, but actually wasn't all that bad. Yeah. Because when I was in Edmonton, I was really scared about losing my relationship with Lynn. Yeah. I told her I was going away for five weeks. Yeah. It turned into five months. You ask your partner to hang on for five months. You know, there was a bit in that. Yes. <clears throat> and I was really scared that I might lose Lynn because of that. I'm in Edmonton and I'm freaking out and I pick up the phone and I ring her and I'm sa and I say, darling, I think we should get married. Just like that. Just like that. Yeah. And she goes, oh, you're just saying that because you're stuck in Canada. And I said, no, I think it's the best thing for us. And when I get home, I think we should do yeah. something about this. Yeah. Anyway, she said yes over the phone. Are you sure? Well, tentatively. <laughs> tentatively. She said yes over the phone. At least I felt that I could go home and feel better about the relationship. That's and good. consequently, I got on the plane home. And when I arrived in Melbourne, I just came up to a great surprise. You've been listening to Count Four and You're In, a father and son podcast where Harley Rodica chats to his dad, professional New Zealand drummer Marcel Rodica. Listen out for the next episode. This podcast series is engineered and produced by Barry McConaughey in Dunedin, New Zealand. Hold up. 